Pachango. to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm your host, Chris Ryan, coming to you from Crestone, Colorado, where we're still waiting for the first big snow of the year. Right now it's about 60 degrees outside, gets down into the 20s at night. Stars are unbelievably bright. It's a dark sky refuge, so uh, it's one of the Places in the United States, probably, uh, there are a lot of places in Canada, I'm sure, where you can see the sky like this, but one of the few places in the United States where you just look in the sky and it's like like it used to be, like the sky looked 10,000 years ago, not all washed out with street lights and headlights and security lights and, uh, yeah, something beautiful about darkness isn't there. This episode is with my good friend, Daniele Bolelli. Um, As I've said many times on the podcast, my favorite sort of episode is the one where it feels like just a good conversation with an interesting person that I happen to record. It's not a performance. It's not an interview. There's nothing contrived about it. Um, And to that end, sometimes it's great when I'm talking with someone that I know pretty well because we kind of know where to go and we're catching up. And other times it's great when it's someone I've never spoken to before, but there's just that click, you know. And um, yeah, several, a lot of the episodes that are coming up are of that sort. Uh, uh, I've recorded a couple with Kyle Tierman. couple of guys here in town who are alternative builders that's coming up soon and of course this conversation with Daniele Bolelli uh, which you know he just reached out as he does every once in a while sweet guy and says let's catch up and fuck yeah let's catch up so we schedule a zoom call and the last time we just talked and um, this time I thought we're just going to talk as well um, because, you know, it's not necessarily, how's the, how's your partner? How's your daughter? Or, you know, you know, talk, there are a lot of things we could talk about that wouldn't be particularly interesting to you. Um, but we started talking and, and immediately we just jumped into something really interesting and about ideas there's some quote, I forget I forget how it goes exactly, but it's like small people talk about people, big people talk about ideas, something like that. Um, and I, I just love it when your way of catching up with someone is to just go right into some idea that's interesting and, and the two of you kind of dance around it for a while. It, it's as if you're dancing to some intellectual music or something that you both love. Um, and that's what started happening immediately with Daniele. And I said, I just sort of held up my hand and said, Daniele, uh, maybe we should just do a podcast, you know, what the hell? And he's like, sure, if you want to, whatever. And so I just 
click the button and that's what you got here. So this is as organic and small batch and handcrafted as you could possibly want. Fresh from the oven, no planning, no notes, no list of questions, n nothing at all other than a couple of guys shooting the shit. So, and where did that expression come from? Shooting the shit. And how do you explain that to someone who's learning English? English. <laughs> English. Uh, you know, excuse me, what is shooting shit? Like, um, well, shooting shit. Where does that come from? Anyway, we are definitely shooting the shit in this one. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, tomorrow, I have scheduled a recording with a Tibetan Buddhist Rinpoche. Uh, who happens to be here at one of the temples in Crestone. And I, I went to his, he had sort of an open session Sunday morning. And I went to that and I was just blown away by how cool this guy is. Um, he's a black American Rinpoche, which means teacher, which I think is roughly the equivalent of a a priest or or a rabbi. Um, he has a a temple um, in in I think it's in Salt Lake City, and uh, I just sort of looked him up and fascinating dude. He's lived all over the world. Um, he studied martial arts. Uh, he he converted to Tibetan Buddhism, I think, relatively late in life, um, maybe in his 40s. Um, so this is a guy who's been around in every respect. And what I really loved about his teaching was he started off by saying, you know, we have these rituals. So this is in a picture, a Tibetan temple. There are yeah, Buddhas all over the place and, and beautiful colored statues and, and um mandalas and and it's just a very ornate place full of symbols and you know bells that ring and a horn that they blow on at certain times and, and there's a lot of chanting and and me walking meditation and all sorts of stuff in, involved in um the sort of worship rituals of tibetan buddhism and anyway he started off by basically saying all this symbolism is just to remind us about making changes in our consciousness that make the world a better place. And if all we do is engage with the symbolism, but we walk out of here the same as when we walked in here, then this is all a bunch of nonsense. And I thought, man, like, I love that. I love the humility and the acknowledgement of, I won't say the emptiness of the symbols because they're not, they're not empty. They're reflective and, and they're arbitrary. And, that, and that's one of the things that's always sort of made it difficult for me to, to engage seriously with any kind of spiritual, you know, sequences is that it's arbitrary. I mean, you could hop around on your left foot and say you're doing that in service to the Lord and 
if you imbue it with meaning, then in fact, it is full of meaning. But if you're just hopping around on your left foot because the other people in your congregation hop around on their left foot and say that it's in service to the Lord, then you're just an idiot hopping around on your left foot. And it's always been very difficult for me to, you know, sort of wrap my head around that. How can something be totally arbitrary and sacred at the same time? And, um, you know, within two minutes, he was he was into that and he was totally um, uh, transparent and, and, and vulnerable and acknowledging that conundrum, which I just found to be uh, very admirable. And anyway, so I reached out to him and he got back to me and he's like, yeah, do your podcast. So that's going to be a really interesting one. Very much looking forward to that. Daniele Bolelli is one of the coolest dudes I know. He's a historian. He's got his own podcast called History on Fire. Um, he has another one, The Drunken Taoist, which is how I met him initially, probably a decade ago. Uh, he's super smart, super kind, a subtle thinker, and he's got that sexy Italian accent that all the girls love, and probably lots of the boys, too. As often is the case, the video of this conversation will be available to um, supporters of the podcast. Uh, I'll send that out separately. So if you are supporting the podcast, either five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year, you have access to bonus material such as this. Um, and uh, what else can I tell you? If you want to see what's going on here in Crestone, at the house, uh, whatever, the best account to follow on Instagram is the Crestone Conglomerate. The Crestone Conglomerate, which is a, for you uh, geologists out there, it's a particular type of rock that only occurs here in Crestone. It's very interesting, beautiful rock. So the Crestone Conglomerate on Instagram. And uh, yeah, I always forget to mention that I still have this active Amazon affiliate link. So as we head into holiday season, if you're going to be spending money on Amazon, if you go through the link that I will post in the show notes here, um, you can not pay any more. You pay exactly the same thing, but a small percentage, I think four to 7%, depending on what kind of product it is, gets kicked back to the podcast. So that's a cool way to support the podcast without actually costing you any money. Just take it away from that arrogant billionaire and send it to me. I'm not going to go on very much here. I think I'll just leave it at that. Um, I've got a bunch of stuff that I do want to talk about that are kind of accumulating into aroma uh, or two or three. I've got a whole list of things that have occurred to me and, and that, you know, I might have some, some interesting angle to offer. One thing I don't really have much of an interesting angle on is the current crisis in the Middle East. People keep asking me for my opinions on that, and it's, uh, you know, I, I'm not a, a historian. I'm not a any kind of an expert that um, 
whose opinion is worth more than any anyone else's opinion on this matter. Um, you know, it's one of those situations where there just is no, there's, there's no right and wrong. There's no clear yes or no. Um, everything is nuanced. Everything is contextual. Everything has a very complex history behind it. And everyone's telling the story that makes sense to them, which of course doesn't, you know, the fact that there are various truths doesn't make any one of those truths less true. The problem is that when we assume that our truth is the truth. It occurred to me last night how strange it is that truth is a singular in English. The truth. Not the truths. Right? It's the same in Spanish. La verdad. Not las verdades. Uh, and yet, what is more multifaceted than truth? It's so hard to find a single truth. I don't think there is a single truth. Uh, I feel like virtually anything that you could possibly say, there is, there are multiple yes, but responses. Um, you know, and it's, I think it's very indicative of a difficult time historically when the multiplicity of truth becomes or the or the the evasiveness the slipperiness of truth becomes so extreme that our hunger for a handhold leads us to to deny nuance and to deny multiplicity of truths and so you know we come to the answer that this side is evil and this side is good and this side is fighting for their freedom and this side is an oppressor and you know where the truth the truths from my perspective seem to show that in almost all conflicts both sides are simultaneously victim and perpetrator um and that's, if there is a truth, it's a truth that incorporates many truths. Anyway, that's as far as I can go on untangling any of that. Um, but a guy named Michael Gross sent me an email a couple of weeks ago. And he said, like many, I've been disturbed by the brutal violence coming out of Israel over the past week. Of course, the violence on its own is shocking enough, but there's a deep feeling that we all know this is nothing new. This is the experience of so many of our fellow humans, and it always has been, and I guess we just mostly get used to it. Anyway, I wrote a song about it, and uh, if you like it, feel free to share it on your podcast. I not only love this song, I practically wept the first time I heard it. Uh, the purity and simplicity and 
heartbreaking compassion um, that Michael expresses in the song uh, really touched me and continues to touch me every time I listen to it. I wrote back to him and asked if there was any place I should send people. And he said, I have an Instagram at filtered. Um, uh, what's it called? The underline, not the dash, but the underline and photons, P-H-O-T-O-N-S. I'll put a link in the show notes, of course. He said the song is posted at that page if folks want to check it out. I'm always interested in connecting with anyone who wants to reach out. So Michael Gross, the song is called Children of the East. And I say in all sincerity, uh, I think Bob Dylan would be proud to have written this song. Hope you enjoy it. Back home in Ohio, they'd put a man on trial for stealing $50 leather shoes. And they like the peace and quiet that comes after a riot. Is put to bed and written in the news Possessions are respected And children are protected And criminals are sure to pay their dues Cause life is always better When the neighbors and the government Give justice to the ones who share their view when the lights turn off The sunshine rises up somewhere tomorrow And when the sun comes up The dues that must be paid Which we have borrowed still are owed There are those who die Their toil and pain to be forgotten down Fade away like cotton in the snow In Texas where the free are born And tyrants must be crowned with thorns The hand of God has bullets on its thumb And down in old Missouri Where the young men all must hurry And give their lives to service with the gun the stars and stripes are glowing bright And all the folks are sure they're right To end all those who freedom surely shun Cause we're the righteous chosen ones And they're the scum and sure to bum The light of liberty and kingdom come but When the lights turn off The sunshine rises up somewhere tomorrow when the sun comes up, the children of the east must beg and borrow for their lives. There are men who fight for the vengeance of their sisters and their wives. They're blessed if they can even say goodbye. In the streets of Gaza City, like the fiery fields of Haiti, the bombs and guns are beaten like a drum And the terror of the broken Is really just a token Of 80 years of families on the run 
restless souls who claim the right Insist on collecting every single crumb But the claim on their tomorrow Means to pay for yesterday So brokenness, my friends, it's here to stay And when the lights turn off The sunshine rises up somewhere tomorrow And when the sun comes up The old forgotten ones drown in their sorrow and their fear And when the wind blows down Through the empty streets of rubble and veneer There's no one left to even shed a tear So uh, Daniele and I arranged to just catch up today and we started talking and I wasn't planning to record it because I thought we'd just be talking about personal things, but immediately we're talking about all these big ideas (laughs) (laughs) and and it occurs to me like, oh, this would actually be a good podcast. Like we're not talking about our sex lives or money (laughs) problems. We're talking about you know, history and nature and aging and things. And it's like, fuck it, let's do a podcast. Why so welcome right? to the spontaneous podcast, Daniele <laughs> Valeli. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> in order to express our appreciation, my lady Savannah has been listening religiously to your podcast and uh, she's loving it a lot. She Dude, just... every time you post something with her on, on Instagram, I'm just like, I don't know what Daniele did to deserve this woman, but <laughs> you should keep doing it, whatever it is, man. She's... She's great. She's like, I mean, obviously she's super sexy and beautiful, but there's, there's the quality, the inner quality um, that, you know, as we get older, at least speaking for myself, and I I imagine you as well, you just notice that inner quality so much more. And I think it's just like, it's, you know, I've been thinking about writing about something about this uh, or maybe doing a series of podcasts or something about, um, you know, I feel like there's this huge need among young men for some guidance from old fucks yep. like us. Yep. And one of the things like I have, I have a, a friend, I, I won't say who it is, but he's a wonderful person. He's a really wonderful person, yeah. but he's, he's very focused on aesthetic beauty. Yeah. And I feel like he's missing a lot Mm -hmm. um, because of that focus. And, you know, it's not to say that, you know, Hey, a beautiful woman is a, is an amazing thing to behold. But there's so many ways to be beautiful. And I think when I was younger, I only recognized a handful And as I get older, it's like, oh, my God, no, like demeanor is a way to be beautiful. I mean, I know women who are just their voices are so lovely that you just like close your eyes and you're surrounded in beauty. Right. Or they the way they interact with animals or food or, you know, the way they move. I mean, there are so many ways for a woman to be beautiful. Um, And I feel like we do ourselves a disservice by only focusing on the visual. 
Yeah, because I mean, that's part of the gig, 100%. But to me, I mean, I, I know, like, I guess on the other side of the equation, like when I see sometimes people are like, oh, that woman is so incredibly hot. And I'm looking at her and I'm like, I mean, I'm glad you feel that way. She's objectively hot, but I don't find anything remotely attractive about her because the vibe, the energy, the attitude, the, what's behind. And to right. me, it's not behind it. Like you have to dig that deep. To me, it's like everything you have lived through, it shows up in your body. It shows yeah. up in your body language, in your expression, on your face and stuff. So to me, there are plenty of cases where I'm like, eh, not really. I see it right there. There's a lot of weird stuff that I don't like and vice versa. You see beautiful things that you like yeah. on somebody who maybe you know, is beautiful because they have a certain energy. If they didn't, maybe they wouldn't be, you know? And yeah. so that's part yeah. of the package. But yeah, to celebrate the fact that we're actually recording, Savannah right now is just jumping. She lifted her shirt and was jumping up and down. So <laughs> I don't think I've ever gotten that kind of celebration for the podcast we're about to record. So I'm like, I'm very impressed. <laughs> Well, I'm glad I have that effect on her. I'll have to take your word for it, I guess. Yeah, but yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's a there's good. a there's a woman on uh, on Instagram. Uh, she's very well known. I I can't remember her name right now. Um, but she does this thing where there's like a, a short video of some fashion model, like you know, riding some beautiful bicycle or or doing doing something fashion modelly, right? And then this woman, I think she's Australian. And she's just like a regular woman with a regular body, middle-aged, you know, and she'll like do the same thing, but look kind of ridiculous. So she's kind of making fun of herself and also making fun of the fashion models. You know, yeah. have you ever seen this? Do you know what I'm talking well, I about? Seen it, but it's... I'll, I'll, I'll remember her name in a minute. Um, but it's, it's really funny. And the fact that it's self-deprecating makes it, even funnier i mean you know okay. obviously she is making fun of the whole fashion bullshit world but yeah. she's also um but it, it's a funny thing because often i'll see one of her posts and the woman on the left who's the fashion model is objectively like holy shit sure of course but this but she's taking herself so seriously and she's huh? like oh i'm an influencer i'm <laughs> And the woman on the right, who's like, you know, objectively, visually, you know, the whole point is that she's not as attractive. Right. So I find myself more attracted to her. Yeah. yeah because no, she's guess. funny and yeah. she's taking the piss yeah. and like, yeah. hey, I want to hang out with her, even though awesome. I know I'm supposed to be thinking, no, no, the one on the left is the really hot one. You know, it's so strange. No, I mean, it makes sense to me. I mean, beauty in that sense is a package. It's, there is the pure objective external beauty of like if you are a statue kind of beauty. But of yeah. course, then the living component that comes with your emotion, your sense of humor, your attitude, your 10,000 other things that go into... And not even just... It, I don't consider that even inner beauty because it shows up in your looks. It shows up in the yeah. way you look. in enhances them or decreases them based yeah. on... All those. So to me, it's all part of beauty. But yeah, if you're just stuck at the way a statue would look, uh, I think you're missing out because there's yeah. definitely other things that play in the game. The photographic sure. uh, yeah. element. Yeah, yeah, you know, and you just said something a few minutes ago that I think is really important, which is the 
the beauty that comes from experience um you know and we we're so eager to worship youth in this culture that that's a kind of beauty that we miss like you know my partner anya had uh, really bad acne when she was in her 20s she had a, a health issue and um she had this really bad acne for a while and she's got scars on her face and at one point she said something to me about her scars and how you know she was self-conscious about it and and to me it it was like are you kidding me like i look at that i see i see this ordeal that you went through i see someone who went beyond these insecurities that all of us feel you know i saw i see someone who fucking paid their dues and it's it's incredibly beautiful you know, or, or I mean, my my ex Casilda had a scar from um, a cesarean section when she gave birth to her daughter and she was self-conscious about that. And it's like, are you kidding? That scar. Mm-hmm. I look at that scar. I see love. I see your motherhood. I see, you know, this girl that I love your daughter. I, you know, it's like these things uh, symbolize so much uh, beyond just the aesthetic uh, you know, whatever uh, symmetry or whatever the aesthetic thing is. Yeah, it's funny. That stuff tends to be accepted much more in men, you know, like the right. big scar kind of thing right. than in women. And it's weird because it applies equally to both. But yeah, generally speaking, tends to be in men. People are like, oh, it adds to the character in women is because I probably, as you said, there's a cult of youth. It's yeah. like, no, no, anything that doesn't make you look like you're 18 is terrible. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a little weird for sure. It's definitely, there's yeah. something to, I think it's like, it's that same concept you heard of the whole Japanese thing of like when something breaks rather than uh, like you put it together. Right. Highlighting the breaking points and right. you put this, like little gold thing in between that highlights the experience of it all. And uh, yeah, man, there's something to be said about that. And and really, to me, honestly, there's only so much time and energy we have. I want to spend it around people who makes me smile. That every day, they, whether because they are funny or because they are sweet or they are kind or they do something that makes me go, ah, life is nice. You know, yeah. like this is that feeling, it's worth more than anything in the world you yeah know? like it's too hard to be always arguing and mad and drama and all of that it's like no thanks uh, i don't feel like it and so that to me adds to the beauty of it all that ability to just uh enjoy life that ability to bring something yeah. to the table that and you know in this case like with Savannah, i feel like i learn so damn much from her I learn, uh, it's hard for me to even put into words how much I've learned from her about enjoying life. Because she has, you dig that thing, it probably fits actually with your philosophy even more than mine, but it's working wonders for me that it's going to sound bad, but like she has basically no ambition. And it's actually a compliment. I mean it in a good way. <laughs> All the things that make people want to, I want to build a name for myself. I want to achieve this and that. She's like, yeah. I don't give a fuck about any of that. I, you know what I want to do? I want to cuddle my puppy. I want to go for a walk in the sun. I want to. And of course, 
you know, in some circumstances, if you are dealing with, if you don't have uh, food for the next meal, that's going to be hard to pull off. But she has, whereas my ability is more like taking shitty situation and working like a dog to make them better. And I'm decent at that. I, I do a semi-good job and stuff like that. She has this ability that you throw her in a really shitty situation. She's not going to be able necessarily to change them, but she's going to find a way to be happy, even in shitty situations. Yeah. And then I look at these two talents and I look at me and I'm like, I have to work like a dog to change external reality to get that brief moment of elation where I'm like, ah, I did it. This is fantastic. So cool. And then I'm back to the grind because of course there's going to be something else that's not ideal and I have to work to get it to be at a great place. And so I'm constantly chasing this overall uh, sense of satisfaction, happiness, contentment. And she's there all the time just because just naturally, without doing anything. And so I look at those models and I'm like, I think I want to be a little more like her and a little bit less like me. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, that's just a cooler way to be. I, And so I find myself really learning a lot from that. And, yeah. you know, my stuff is the stuff that the world recognizes more because it's like achievement, hard work, discipline that leads to these results. But I'm like, yeah, I trade all that in a millisecond for what she's got in terms of consciousness and attitude to our life. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, isn't it interesting that basically all the spiritual traditions are selling us to be here now, right? Mm. I mean, that's what they all boil down to is like, yep. stop thinking about the future. Stop thinking about the past. Experience the present moment. That is nirvana. That is, you know, what we're trying to achieve. You know, which is, I mean, you know, obviously no insult uh, to Savannah or anybody else, but it's, it's, it's almost like, um, you know, I, I almost want to say it's like an, a non-human animal consciousness. I think that's why people love dogs and cats. Sure. They're totally in the moment, right? But, but it is human. Hunter-gatherers are in the moment, huh. you know, they're not, I, that's why I love, um, I don't know if you ever read a book called Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes about the Pinaha people in the upper Amazon. Uh, it's amazing. It's this linguist. I've talked about it on the podcast a lot. I I won't go on and on. But it's this linguist named Daniel Everett who initially went to live with them um, uh, at, to proselytize. He was a Christian missionary. Mm -hmm. And he has a real talent for language, and he their, their language is very difficult, very different from any other known language. Um, and he lived with them for like 20 years, and there are all these amazing moments. And just in terms of the language, like they don't have future and, and past tense. They don't have any kind of uh, like referential words. In other words, th there are no color words. Mm-hmm. So there's no word for red. Yep. You just say the it's the color of blood, mm -hmm. right? Or yeah. blue is the color of the sky on a clear day. Everything is like that. Everything yep. is um numbers one, two, three, many. Uh, <laughs> you know, and there's this wonderful anecdote where he's early in his visit and he's talking to them about Jesus and a couple of the older guys take him aside and they say 
listen, um, you're always talking about this guy, Jesus, to us. Did you know Jesus? And he says, oh, no, Jesus lived, you know, many, many generations ago. Yeah. Did your father know Jesus? No. Did your grandfather? No, no, much, much further. And they say, okay, Daniel, if no one that you knew knew Jesus, stop talking about Jesus. We don't don't care. Like, (laughs) we just... Like their consciousness is unconcerned with anything that is an immediate experience. Right. Which is also, if you think about it, I mean, even in terms of, um, think about our life, like everybody really, think about how many people, like if you go, usually most people know their parents, you know, if you are adopted or something, maybe not, but otherwise, you know, your parents and you could fill in their biographies with lots of information. Your grandparents, a little bit less, but usually it's still conceivable that you know a lot about them. You grew up some years with them, that kind of thing. When you go to great-grandparents, most of us, maybe you know their name and you know, you're like, okay, they did this for a living. They live there. You know, you can fill out, you know, in three lines. Right. And then you go one generation further. (laughs) It's a blank. And here you are talking about the people who went into directly making you, not relatives, not, other yeah. branches of family tree, your direct ancestors, yeah. three generations, over three generations. And and it's funny how, you know, we take ourselves so seriously and our legacy and the meaning of what we do and all of that. And the reality is that not the world at large would probably never know you existed, but like your direct descendants, your immediate family will have no idea who you were or at best they'll have a two-liner about you that they remember your entire experience, everything you went through basically goes poof into the just in the span of relatively few years. Yeah. And to me, that's fascinating, this thing you're saying, because it's exactly like those two, three generations, people who actually meet each other, grandfather to grand, grandparents to grandkids, maybe great grandparents as a stretch. And that's it. That's yeah. the range. Anything beyond that is just a blur in the past. Yeah. And, uh, and leaves very little. Mar- I mean, it may leave marks genetically. It may leave marks, uh, but not, not in way that any of us are conscious of in any way, shape, or form. And- yeah, it's it's. I was reading this essay yesterday by a biologist um, mm-hmm. who who just was diagnosed with uh, prostate cancer, mm-hmm. and so he was sort of writing about uh, the experience of you know, sort of being reminded of his own mortality and, and um, how his sort of understanding of biology was informing some of these existential questions that he was asking himself. And he was talking specifically about uh, sort of a, the conventional understanding of DNA, like it's a blueprint for a body. He was like, that's totally not true um, because it's all about which genes get activated, yeah. not which genes exist. Right. And we don't know wh- how different genes are activated or not activated. And, you know, so he was sort of going through this whole thing. Anyway, he, he was saying like, he was quoting uh, Carl Sagan, talking about how we are the universe looking back at itself and how amazing it is that atoms just somehow came together and, formed consciousness and at least we think we're conscious right 
And it, and he said, to me, a life, the best way to think about a life is like, it's like a whirlpool. It's, it's a, yes, water moves through it, but the life is the form, is mm-hmm. this form that arises in a current and some persist longer and some dissipate, but the water doesn't come. I mean, the water's there. The water doesn't disappear when the whirlpool's gone, right? Um, it's just interesting, like, you know, because I live here in the in the high desert and I, I've got a view 50 miles across this valley in front of me, the San Luis Valley. And you can look out there and you see these dust devils, mm-hmm. you know, come up and yeah. blow and and it's like, I feel like, yeah, that's a life. A life is yep. just a confluence of factors and shh, there you are. And then the wind dies down and shh, you're gone. And, you know, there's a way where I think some people are horrified by that thought. They want, that's why they are so big on legacy, on leaving a mark in the world or something, because they feel that it gives meaning to their lives in that sense. Yeah. And then when you realize that, yeah, overwhelmingly we are the proverbial dust devil just you leave pretty much as much impact as one of those it can be some people can find it very depressing some people can actually find it liberating because it's like well then we're just playing a giant cosmic joke and you're just free to relax a little and enjoy well that's what we were talking about earlier that that i i stopped you and we wanted to start recording because we were talking about how you were asking me how it felt to live out here in, in the middle of nowhere. And I was talking about seasons, yep. right? It's the same thing. It's like, it reminds you of your insignificance, mm-hmm. which you're right. Some people freak out. Some people need to get back. Some people come and they move here. I mean, it's sort of a joke, a local joke that people come here and Crestone spits them out. <laughs> right. like oh you thought you were going to come and live right. here no you're not going to live here yeah. you, this yeah. isn't for you you know yeah. and I think that's one of the things because you go out at night it's totally silent you yeah. might hear some coyotes howling in the distance but there are no trucks going by there's no airplanes flying over you look at the sky it's a dark sky reserve you see all the stars you see the Milky Way. You see, in fact, uh, two nights ago, people were seeing the Northern Lights here. I oh, didn't see them, but yeah, people yeah. photographed it and saw them. Um, it's just huge and empty and silent and dark. And that lets all the stuff inside you kind of expand out, right? So if the voice is in your head, if you don't want to hear the voices in your head, then the last place you want to be is a silent <laughs> place, you know? Yes, yes. But yeah, I I find it extremely refreshing to just go out, walk out the door to take a piss and look up at the stars and like, this is crazy. So amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I think he's exact, uh, in some way, what you're describing is uh, the energy that is the exact opposite spectrum of hardcore capitalism. Yeah. Because, you know, the... And you talk about it a lot. You talk about it in Civilized to Death. You brought it up in podcast. This idea of like people who are essentially they live in the way that you know Gabor Mate had what was his title of his book, The Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Hungry Ghosts, like yeah. Yeah. It's exactly that, right? Because you are never satisfied with where you are. Right. 
things are here with who you are in the present. And so you are constantly chasing something that is, I need to have X money in the bank. I need to leave this legacy. I need to do the, you are constantly hustling because you cannot be quiet for one minute, just being, you know? And I get it. I completely understand that feeling, that drive is not a good way to live. It's a very, never mind how bad it is for everyone around you or for the planet, but it's also for yourself. You're clearly, you know, you're never a place of peace. You're constantly running, racing. Reminds me, I saw a video. This was actually kind of comedic. Uh, I saw a video of this guy was uh, African-American guy who clearly took some edibles. And uh, he was like, why do white people fuck up weed so bad? You know, all I wanted was just relax and watch some cartoons. Why did you have to make it so power? Like, I wanted to watch cartoons and eat snacks. I'm in the middle of the apocalypse here. And then <laughs> the camera is like, what are you guys all running away from? What's your life so bad that you need to do this? You know? Yeah. And to me, that applied, aside from the joke about too strong weed, it applies a lot to what we are describing. It's like, what the hell are you running away from that you need to be constantly hustling, constantly? I remember many years ago in a podcast you brought up, I don't remember who you were talking about, but it could have been, I think actually it was Tim Ferriss perhaps, but you were talking about somebody who was clearly super successful, who had done very well for themselves, and they were still hustling 24-7. Yeah. Well, it was and Tim Ferriss, because was Tim Ferriss, okay. I read the 20-hour work week. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His yeah. first book, right? And yeah. I was on a safari in Africa, and I remember reading it in the in the van. And I remember there was this moment where he says, it's really important before you start your business and blah, 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 that you pick a number. Yep, yep. Knowing when to stop. Yes, exactly. Know when yeah. you know when it's enough because yeah. the number will change as you go. So you need to pick yeah. it before you start. Yeah. And so Tim Ferriss, like, what was your number, dude? <laughs> <laughs> Seven zillion. And that, yeah, of course. It's, and I think it, it makes sense because it becomes a drug. You know, it becomes your meaning. It becomes your, what gives you an identity. It becomes this thing is the hustle, the... I mean, I know the times when I've always been more bummed out in my life. Those are the times when I check my bank account the most because mm -hmm. I need to look at like a number that gives me meaning. That's like, hey, at least you have done this. You have, you have, you made this much, even if whatever much that is, even if it was nothing, you know, but just that sense of like accomplishment, meaning, self-esteem that I clearly wasn't deriving from day-to-day -day life, from just being mm -hmm. me. And I needed something to pat me on the back to make me feel like I've done something, you know, that I'm good. And and again, terrible. I don't say it in a mean way, like like people who are trapped in that are, because fuck, I've been trapped in that so many times in my life, probably most of my life. So I'm not saying it like I'm judging somebody else. I very much put myself in that. But it's like, it's a, not a good way to live, you know? And it's unfortunately the norm where we are at at this time and place the exception is uh the savannah vibe the being able to just roll through anything and just being happy with how things are and that's really hard to it's really I, again maybe in a completely different culture it's not hard to do because that's what the culture sort of hand you on a golden platter from day one but in where we are at historically and culturally that's a super hard thing to do that's well, a I... ski it's not common. 
I'm a little surprised that it's an issue for you for two reasons. One, you were raised in Italy, right? Yeah, yeah. And Italy is much less about it's you know it's it's like Spain. Oh. It's you you know you work to live, you don't live yeah. to work, right? It's mm-hmm. about enjoy the food, enjoy the beauty, enjoy. I mean, Italy's a very sensual, pleasure based society. And also, I've I don't know anything about your father, but I've met your mother, and she's a very loving, kind, wonderful person. So. I imagine as a kid, you were getting lots of love yep. from your mom. 100%. My dad, to talk, my dad, I think also there's like my, my dad was flat out poor because he never chose to do any job that he didn't want to do. He never compromised this much, mm. which was awesome in some way. He spent a lot of time with me. He dedicated time of the, but we were always like, fuck, there's rent and we have no idea how we're going to... And that stressed me out a little bit. Ah, you know, okay. So that's where it comes stressed. from. Yeah. He was stressed. He could roll right through it. For me, it was a little <laughs> anxiety-inducing. Yeah. And, and the reality is that, yeah, I couldn't afford jack shit, you know? I was like... Uh, which was fine. I mean, I don't really begrudge that part. But I think also because life in Italy, for me, it has many advantages like you're describing. There are many, many aspects of Italian culture that I adore. There's some aspects that I don't adore so much because there's a, there's a basic cynicism there that mm. if you want to create anything, if you want to do anything remotely creative or remotely, like you have a new idea, you want the general attitude is, why even bother? It's never going to work. Uh, screw this. That bothered me because to me, I guess Italy is definitely more, it's a happier place for day-to-day life and enjoyment than uh, US. However, it's not so happy that I'm just like, oh, I can just melt into doing nothing all day and I would love it. There's still stuff that I don't like where I would like to change and modify. And Italy is so hostile to that. Yeah. So to me, the thing was like, okay, well, if I'm getting something that makes me happier, but not really what I need, and I don't get the chance to do or create, because every other door is shut in your face with the attitude of like, don't even bother, nothing is ever going to work, that rubbed me the wrong way. And so yeah. that thing that I like about US was sometimes the stupid enthusiasm for doing things <laughs> you shouldn't even do, but the general attitude was more yes than no to say right. Right. And I do appreciate that. I do appreciate stupid enthusiasm over smart cynicism any day. You know? <laughs> I uh you remind me of, of a few years ago I was in Spain and I was I was thinking maybe I was gonna move back to Spain and um I was doing my podcast and I I was thinking about like okay I know a lot of people in Spain a lot of Spanish people and a lot of them speak English so who should I have on my podcast and I was sort of going down the list of these people that I knew and it occurred to me that uh in Spain it's a really healthy culture that produces healthy, balanced people who aren't really all that interesting, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas America is a totally fucking messed up, bullshit, hostile, imbalanced, 
pathological culture, but man, it produces a lot of really interesting people. Thanks for great stories. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it does. I mean, yeah, I, you know, it's just uh, it's a strange thing, uh, you know, and, and so it's kind of like what you were saying about Italy. It's it's like, man, I, even when I'm in Spain, when I was living in Spain, I was really paying attention to what was going on in American culture because it's so much more interesting. Right. I don't give a shit about the king having an affair. You know, like what it, what's going on in Spain just seems like, ah, who gives a shit? It's it's just Spain, you know, but what's going on in the U.S. kind of matters to everybody, whether you like it or not. I mean, and that's true in every sense, because think about uh, music or movies or things is like what happens in certain places in the U.S. goes everywhere in the world. Yeah. What happens in a regional culture usually stays there at most extend to a few neighboring countries. It's not yeah. that common. I mean, even that, speaking of Italy, like right now, there's this one group, Maneskin, that came out of Italy that's huge. Like they had a level of success that I don't think I've ever seen an Italian musician pull off. And they are, you know, 20 some year old kids who just. Mm. Uh, are doing mostly rock, which is not a thing that's like the most popular thing right now in the last few years. And they are insanely successful abroad. And people in, they have some success in Italy too, don't get me wrong, but there's a ton of backlash in Italy because there's the, who the hell do you guys think you are? You know, there's the classic Italian cynicism that kicks in. Very crabs in a pot kind of thing. And uh, but it's rare, you know, most of the time, anybody who become famous in Italy for music or art or whatever is only for an Italian market. Right. Uh, people is like, oh, back in the day. Yeah, that was the Renaissance where people did something in Italy and they went all over the world, you know. Oh, Pavarotti. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, you have exceptions. Don't That's the last exceptions. one, probably. Yeah, right? You have exceptions, but they are exceptions. That's the point. It's yeah. like norm is that it's very much for an internal market of people who speak only Italian, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think there's a reason there. There is an element that it's attractive about US in that regard, despite, as you said, again, this is not about idealizing or demonizing any one place. You know, there's a ton of stuff that I love about Italy way better than I love about living in the US. A lot. I can go like a long list. There are also things that I find fascinating about living in the US. And these, uh, I've never found a place where I was like, oh, it checks all the boxes. I'm, uh, they have these, that's amazing. And these, that's amazing. And it's always like this weird mixed bag. And you just have to decide which mixed bag is good yeah. for you point in your life i gotta say though man i think ohi has to be one of the best possible places to be it's a sweet spot i like it i like i mean the weather is so beautiful the landscape is beautiful you can go walking good food good people definitely it seems like you you picked a good place there and you know like that's also the part of American culture that even in you know, places like Hawaii is not really that different. Is uh, your friends in US? I think like I have a bunch of people who think I'm like their super close friend, and I'm like, I- I'm not gonna say to them because I don't want to be mean. But I'm like, man, we're barely acquaintances. Like I don't know what your definition of friendship is, but like, how often do we talk? How often do we see each other? It's like. Friendship is not like you get along when you see each other. You also need to put time and energy in it. Mm. Otherwise, is your friendly, you like each other, 
you think you're good people and you wish the best for each other. But that's a very different thing from being, you know, really putting time and energy where if it's 2 a.m. and you call the person is there in five minutes. You know, it's like even in places like where I live now, it's not that most of the people I know, I see them like once every two months if I'm if at that. And so yeah. to me, you have that kind of like clearly you're putting your time and energy somewhere else, not in social relations. And so since like friendship are the poor cousin of friendship, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's not really the real thing. It's, uh, it's, I guess, the best substitute you can get in a society that's very driven on work, 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 and maybe all your social relations go in your immediate nuclear family. And that's yeah. it. And you really don't move much beyond that. The rest is like, yeah. oh, once in a while you shoot the shit with somebody. But, and you know, I miss that. I think that's something that both you and I, I think we have the feeling of like, we woke up one morning and we're like, where the fuck is my teepee? Where's my tribe? You know, because that's what we resonate with in a way. Where Every like, morning. I want those human relationships. Yeah. And we don't live in a society that goes there not even this much you know it's actually goes in the exact opposite direction yeah know a lot of people that i get along with that i like am i friends with them i guess depends on your definition of friendship you know for my definition for my definition of this is how fucked up i am my definition of friendship italy wasn't friendly enough as a place i always thought ah this place is doesn't and of course i moved to us as a good idea right because it's like a hundred times less than italy in that regard And, you know, you get what you pay for. You know, I get other things in U.S. that I enjoy, but those are big things that clearly are nowhere near to be found here. And I'm sure, you know, somebody listening will have uh, exceptions to that. We'll have like, hey, man, I have my tight group of friends and we are really there for it. And I'm so happy for you. But that really is the exception to the rule. It's not. Yeah. I I went to a a friend's uh, 40th birthday party. Uh, recently and this is a guy who grew up in santa cruz and he has stayed really close with the people he grew up with right so there were probably the party was a surprise party and it was out at joshua tree and there were probably 50 people there yeah like a lot of people who drove down from santa cruz right and he known them his whole life. They went to grade school together and all that. And Anya and I were talking, and it was like, man, I if I mean if if I had a party like this, yeah, I, I wouldn't even know fifty people to invite. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> much yeah. less fifty people who would show up. Maybe and so show up, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so for a while I was feeling really inadequate and like, yeah. geez, I mean, I, I'm older than this guy and I don't have as many friends as he does. But then it was like, well, okay, but his friends in this group, and, and again, I'm not trying to insult anyone. I don't know them. I was just sort of an outsider at the party, but they're friends because of circumstance. Sure. Right. And so it's like being friends with the guy you work with or, your neighbor or you know someone you go and you watch soccer matches with or you have some shared interest or the parents of a kid who's in school with your kid you know it's 
it's not really your friends because you really love being together and you see the world in similar ways and all that. It's, it's circumstantial. And, uh, and it's a weird thing because that doesn't necessarily mean it's not real. So I was, I was thinking about these like um, Sebastian Junger, right? He writes about these squads of guys and, you know, they're at war and they're got each other's backs. And, you know, I, I remember this, this line in an interview when I think it was Bill Maher was interviewing him after he'd written that book about Restrepo in, in Afghanistan. And, and uh, Bill Maher said, so, okay, these guys, they're out there, they're getting shot at every day. They're like sleeping in holes that they dig in the dirt and like horrible. They're not thinking about geopolitical trade routes and you know access to natural resources or whatever the fuck the war is about why are they fighting why do they bother doing this and Junger said they do it for each other they do it out of love for each other right and i'm thinking like okay every guy who's in his squad, he comes out of it and he's like, those are the best fucking dudes in the world. Those are my brothers. I die for those guys. But dude, if you had been assigned to a different squad, you'd have same the exact thing. same feelings. Yeah. Not only that, if you had assigned to the squad of the enemy, on the other side of the battlefield, yeah. you'd have the same. So it's like, this isn't, so maybe all friendship is circumstantial. To some degree, I mean, I think to a lot of degrees for sure, because uh, that's the realities. Like, I mean, even in a tribe, you're born there. You happen to be born next to each other. And that's right. how it is. You, know, you, you go hunting friend. together. Yeah. He yeah. saved your life one time, you know. Absolutely. Stuff and accumulates. I, and I think there's a mix, right? There's some of it that's purely circumstantial. It's like, hey, we are in it together, regardless of our particular psychological makeup or whether we would like each other if we meet in, it doesn't matter. We meet in these circumstances and right. in this circumstances we create a bond and then there's the other one the people you choose from across the globe where you're like you don't necessarily have something uh, that pushes you together that makes you but you really just like them as human beings and so you want those relationships and it's a tricky thing because yeah it's um i think the war again especially western capitalist countries happens everywhere i mean it's like take a place like japan that basically buys into the same model you still work like a dog and you have those but like these days uh, anytime i call somebody just to check on just because i want to hear what's up you know how they are doing just check on them just to see like overwhelmingly people look at like they don't know what to do with it they are like so, like, you're not calling me because of something, because you want something or you want to do, not in wanting a necessarily mean way, but like, you know, you, you yeah. want to, there, there's, there's got no to purpose. be, otherwise, why are we talking, you know, if right. there's no purpose? And I'm like, that's to me, the whole point of friendship is when you want to talk to somebody when you don't have to, you know, <laughs> where not because you are trying to achieve something or there's yeah. an end goal is like, I enjoy hearing your voice. I enjoy the exchange of energy that happens where we chat. That's it. Doesn't have to go anywhere. Doesn't. There's no plan. There's no nothing. It's just purely back to being in the moment, right? I enjoy sharing moments with you. The end. That's it. And I think most of us like it, but it's so culturally foreign 
that is just a strange thing that it catches almost by surprise that then, you know, overwhelmingly, anytime I do that, people love it. They are like, oh, wow, you actually just want to talk to me. And I, yeah, what a concept, right? What a crazy thing. And you get into it and you chat and they have fun and they feel good. But it's like, what's weird is that we don't do that on a regular for each other. You know, that that's not how we live because uh, people overwhelmingly appreciate that stuff. But we are so yeah. in the uh, hustle culture that there has to be a purpose. Otherwise, why are we interacting kind of thing? Yeah. I feel like there's uh like that's a pretty recent thing. Yeah. Because I, you know, I remember, you know, through my 20s, just calling someone like, okay. how you do? Hey, what's yeah. up? You know, how you doing? Then you have an answering machine comes in and then. But I think, you know, once you have email and texting, then it becomes it becomes more difficult, I think, you know, Um, I think uh, I think we lost that. I personally I fucking hate phone calls, but it's not because of the it's not that I don't like catching up with people. It's that. I can't fucking hear on the cell phone. <laughs> yeah, well, that's different. <laughs> that's, you know, so yeah. I mean, to me, it's such a it's it's a metaphor for progress in yeah. air quotes. You know, like oh, now we've got this amazing technology that doesn't fucking work. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's right. like okay, great, I can call you from anywhere, but I can't fucking hear you. Yeah, yeah, so. Yeah the one thing that a phone really sucks at is being a phone. And, the, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm talking to you right now with headphones, with this curled uh, cord. I remember when phones had this cord yeah, and they yeah, worked. Of course, you of could course. hear the person. I'd, I'd be on the phone for three hours with my girlfriend, you know, in 1977 or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's interesting how, it feels like the trajectory of modern life is is greater quantity and lower quality. Hundred percent, everything. Yeah. You know, there's a great book you should read in that regard called "Civilized to Death." Never heard of it. Uh, it's Fuck really that. good. You should check it out. <laughs> I was uh, the other night. I was reading a book somebody recommended to me uh, a series of essays mm-hmm. um, by Tim Crider. Is the name of the writer. And so I, it, the book's called, I wrote this book because I love you. And it's, it's a series of essays about relationships that he was in and, you know, sticky situations he got himself into. He's a good writer. Anyway, the first one I, I, I read was called, I think it was called the conundrum. And it was about how he was in love with two women. He was dating two women at the same time. And both of them said, you need to choose. Like we're not, comfortable with this situation so he was like going through this whole thing how he was going to choose and you might relate to this so i'm reading this and he says so a friend of mine recommended a book called sex at dawn particularly a chapter called the perverts lament and uh da, 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 da. and i'm like oh oh look at that <laughs> and then there's a footnote and he says something like, um, the book was popular at the time, but I wouldn't recommend it. And he says something, he says like the logic is, is, you know, it's poorly reasoned or, or some shit uh-huh. like that. And then he said, and the authors uh, are the kind of people who use words like 
um what were they it was mighty yeah. uh and some other word as a as an intensifier so in other words well that's a mighty strange conclusion to come to right. you know yeah. like which yeah. is a vernacular uh, yeah. american thing and so anyway the point is you go through this thing because we started talking about like fame being fleeting and yeah. all that where it's like, oh, he's talking about me. Like, oh, that's so great. And then he's like, oh, he's fucking shitting on me. Fuck this guy, right, <laughs> Fuck right. This guy. Yeah, yeah. It's so I, funny. Yeah. yeah. Do you, like, would people have emotional or critical responses to your work? Do you still feel it personally? Or are you distant um, enough from it that you don't really get into that? I mean... To me, like what people like and what people don't like, it, there are 10,000 factors that most of them have nothing to do with the actual thing they like or don't like. Right. So, you know, you try to remind yourself, it's like, doesn't mean shit. You know, it doesn't mean, it means uh, that for them at this time, given all the circumstances, it either clicks or it doesn't. Of course, I like it when it clicks. It sucks when it doesn't, but it is what it is. You know, it's like, I'll write something and some people will go insane and they are like, oh, this is the greatest thing I've ever read. And somebody else is like, you can't fucking write. I hate this style. It's excessive. And and it's like, whatever. You know, this is me. You like it. You like it. You don't like it. You don't like it. I'm not trying to establish some objective criteria by which I'm great or I'm not. I don't give a fuck. Uh, if you enjoy it, I'm glad. And please send me your money. No, I'm kidding, but whatever, you know. But if you don't, uh, then that's okay too. It's like I, I yeah. try not to take it personal. Of course, it sucks sometimes because, you know, you put a ton of time, energy, and love in things you create. And so when people are like, yeah, no, it's like, oh, that stings. That sucks. It's you. Yeah, but, but I think it's a good it's a good lesson because it reminds you that the only reason to create anything is for your own satisfaction. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. If you're not if it yeah. doesn't make you feel good, it yeah. doesn't matter if a million people love it. If you don't love it, it's still gonna okay. you're gonna cringe at night, you know. I'll tell you an interesting one then or something that shifted in me lately and I'm really enjoying it while it lasts. I don't have illusion that it's permanent, but I'm digging it right now. So for, I spent maybe the last year and some, like I had uh, History on Fire as a podcast behind the paywall for a while. So then when it came out and I'm trying to rebuild it, it's way harder than I thought it was. I'm having Because you lost a lot of momentum, right? I mean, you lost lost a lot of audience. yeah. And, you know, I thought like, okay, I get back, I can rebuild it the same way I built it the first time without even starting from scratch because I start from a decent place. Right. But no, it basically stay at the decent place and doesn't build up anymore. And I'm like, what the hell? How did that? And it pisses me off. And uh, and then, you know, I wrote uh, I wrote a novel that I love a lot. And I'm having the hardest time getting through agents and publishers and all of that. And, you know, I was like... I had all this drama going on in writing it because I'm like, hey, can I write a novel? I've never I've written nonfiction. I've never written fiction. Can I pull this off? And so by right. the time I'm done and I look at it and I'm like, God damn it, this is everything I wanted and more. So I feel like I've done it. And now I still, it's so hard to get through all the bullshit to get it to where I want it to be. So I was really bummed for a year plus. I mean, don't get me wrong. I enjoyed life. I had a blast. I had 
plenty of great things. But, you know, there was this sense of, I'm mad. I cannot get what I wanted out of the things I'm creating in terms of public recognition and response and this, that, and the other. And so at one point, as I'm wallowing in my misery pit of just complaining about the unfairness of the universe, um, I wrote, uh, you know, my daughter just started high school. She's 14. So at one point, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I want to write a sweet short story for her. Sweet, of course, is my style. So the the title is uh, uh, Suiting Grief, which sounds sweet. And headhunting, because it's about some uh, Scythian girl warrior in 2,500 years ago. And of course, is very emotionally sweet coming of age. And also you go collecting the heads of your enemies. So, you know, there's that. So I was having, I, I had a blast writing it, mm-hmm. you know, short story. I don't know, like 7,000 words, something like that. And I wrote it really for an audience of one. I just wrote, I mean, I guess two, because me too. But like primarily was if she likes it and I like it, success. And then from that point forward, you know, if friends and family want to read it, that's great. And if they like it, even better. But if not, I'm not trying to do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe I will at some point, but it's not planned that way. And it's not in- it was really just for an audience of two. I love writing it and she liked reading it. And so I was like, done. This feels good. And maybe was doing that, maybe was the stuff I was telling about Savannah being around there and really making a conscious effort to be more that way. But lately I'm enjoying a period where I don't feel I need anything. Very yeah. rare. I always have this, okay, I can enjoy life, but I'm looking forward to the next thing. I'm like, I'm looking forward to lunch. That's what I'm looking forward to. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm, I wake yeah. up. Every day, and I'm like, oh, man, it feels good to be alive. But yeah. I'm really looking six inches in front of me. Just um, And, you know, I still work, and I work hard, and I do things. But I don't have that attachment, you know. Mm. And I'm probably going to change. Again, I'm not thinking, uh, you know, I achieved this. Uh, I'm floating in uh, Buddha lights, and I'm enlightened or some shit. You know, I'm sure I'm going to go through some other emotions that are going to bring me to a different place. But I'm really enjoying this place. I'm really enjoying this place of not needing anything. Not, you know, if certain doors open, I'll be thrilled. But if they don't, okay, so fuck, I'm still enjoying life, you know? And I never had that feeling. So I'm just like, wow, this feels really good. I'm mm-hmm. liking it. Yeah, yeah. I I re- remember reading this book by Choyum Trungpa years ago. <laughs> He was here in Crestone, by the way. He's a big part of the foundation of this town that he there's a Tibetan. Actually, I live on the property of a Tibetan temple, uh, Tibetan Buddhist temple. And um, you, you and I may have talked about this before, but he in one of his books, he says something about how Westerners get this idea of enlightenment wrong because they think that it means you're just always happy and always just blissed out and he said actually in tibetan what the word means is balance Mm -hmm. that no matter how good things are going for you personally you never forget that other people are going through really difficult times and you maintain your compassion for them and no matter how 
horribly things are going for you personally. You never forget how beautiful it is to be alive. And he he ends it with this beautiful line. He says, enlightenment is joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. That's a perfect line. And it makes absolute perfect sense to me. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, you said, you know, you know, emotions might take me in different places and so on and so forth. And I'm sure they will. But I feel like once you get that, you know, whether it's through experience or study or meditation or whatever, once you get that, oh, things are always in balance as long as my perspective allows it, right? Um, I feel like once you get that, I think you're there. I think for the rest of your life, you're going to be there. It's probably, maybe you're right. And maybe at worst, it's easier to get there. Like even if you get thrown off or something, because you remember, like you lit that fire once, you know how to do it. Maybe it's easier to find your way back. That could be, yeah. But, But either way, I like it. I mean, it's certainly better than the alternative of not knowing how to get back or not being there all the time. And it's... uh, yeah. And it was weird to me because like nothing in my external reality changed in the past year in that regard. And, and, you know, it's not like I never knew like, oh, don't be attached to the outcome or, you know, enjoy the moment. It's like, fuck, those are platitudes that you read on Hallmark cards, you know, right. but like but for some reason it clicked, <laughs> you know, <so laughs> one day just went click. And I was like, right. oh, okay. That's now I actually feel it. You know, I don't well, just get yeah. it actually well isn't that like what we were talking about initially right this understanding of the many different ways that someone can be beautiful like you know we both knew that when we were 22 23 we both knew that you know you can't judge a book by its cover inner beauty is more important blah 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 but speaking for myself i think i was just so distracted by the physical beauty that even though intellectually i understood that stuff it didn't click. Yeah, of course. You know, I, mean, I think honestly, most of what we, most of the books we read, most of the stuff we enjoy, is not that we ever run into ideas we never heard of. Because unless you have been sitting under a rock, you have probably heard most anything you're gonna hear by the time you're twenty. You All know? the ideas. The question <laughs> is how deep they go, how they are able to turn from purely thought that you can even agree with and say, yeah, that's a good idea to something right. that's internalized and become real. And, you know, different, sometimes you read an author that's going to tell you the same thing you read 50 times, but that line hits the right way. And suddenly that thought, that feeling becomes in, becomes real, become part of who you are. Right. That's why I think it's fun to get stimulation, intellectual stimulation from a bunch of different sources because it's not about the novelty of the idea. It's about how it helps make that click happen. And the click is magic because there's really no rhyme or reason. It's like, why now? Why is this or why is... And that is by the same token, when it doesn't happen, there's that feeling like the Zenkoan of the... You know, there's a live duck inside a glass bottle and you want the duck to come out without breaking the bottle, which is obviously impossible. And so there, and then the Zagoan is like, oh, it's already out, which logically is like, no, it's not, motherfucker. You just told me that it was in, it's not out. But like when that thing happens, when the shift happens, there is no how. 
there is no, oh, I did the seven steps to inner peace thing. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. It's like something clicks and hell if I know why, you know, it's probably a lifetime of experiences and circumstances that go into making it happen. And when it happened, you can just look around, say, thank you, thank you to whatever helps me being in this place now, because it feels good. And it feels like crap when I wasn't in this place. So again, you know, I don't have, uh, I I like your optimism and I hope that it's true. Um, I don't know that is, you know, maybe some bad shit happens and it throws me completely off and I can't find my way back to this place. It's entirely within the realm of possibilities. But uh, so I'm not putting it like, oh, that's my new identity or is like my achievement or some shit like that. It's purely mm. more like, hey, I'm glad to be here right now. Yeah. And, yeah. If it changes, it changes, and I'll deal with it at that point. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, what are you doing these days? What you mentioned the podcast. I know you're still doing history on fire, yep. I, and I got to say, my audience—who knows how big podcast audiences are? I mean, it's it's one of the great lies. <laughs> yeah, that they are taking guesses on who's. Yeah, <laughs> nobody knows how many listeners yeah. they have. Uh, you know, you know, maybe how many downloads you're getting, uh, but even then you don't really know because some apps take one one course. copy and then, you know, they host it on their server. I, so maybe I'm wrong, but I, I have no idea how many listeners I have, um, yeah. but it's probably a fraction of what it was five years ago. Right. Um, but I kind of like it because I feel like the people... <laughs> You know, it's a long time since I've been on Rogan's show or, you know, I mean, I left L.A., so I'm not doing the podcast circuit the way I used to. And uh, so anyone who's listening to my podcast at this point actually really like they're committed. They're they're in yeah, for the for the ride, you know, um, and that makes it cool because I I can actually respond to emails and I can interact in a way yep. that I couldn't have, you know, uh-huh. I mean, I don't know if there are 20,000 people listening now, that's a manageable number, whereas 50 or a hundred, right. that's a whole different thing. Like I can't deal with the emails yep. and, you know, yep. um, yeah. And, and it's, it reminds me of this, uh, this story. And I've told the story before I've told all my stories before. That's the problem with doing a podcast for 10 plus years. Everybody's heard everything by now. Right. But uh, Kyle, do you know Kyle Tierman, the no. the the guy I did the motherfucker awards with? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. His father's a really cool guy. He's a filmmaker, and uh, he knows, you know, all these big wigs in Hollywood and all that. Anyway, he tells the story about how he was at a dinner party, and it's some billionaire's house, I think, and the. And, and uh, Joseph Heller was there who wrote Catch-22. Uh, and the, the billionaire gets a phone call and he has to go and take the phone call in the office. And so the rest of them are sitting around the table and someone says to Joseph Heller, does it does it ever bother you that this guy makes as much money in a day as you've made from all the books you've ever written? And Heller says, yeah, but I've got something he'll never have. You know this story? I just read it the other day. Somebody posted it on something that I never heard it before. And I just ran into it two days ago. Yeah. 
enough. But yeah, please deliver. Exactly. That's the beautiful punchline. Enough. Right? I have enough. And it's like, I think about that all the time. It's like, yeah, I have enough. I could write another book and, you know, based on yeah. the success of the first two, I could probably get a really nice advance. But do I want to? Do I? Uh, and if you do, you do it because you feel like, yeah, why not? I'm going to have fun writing it. Well, that's it. If I do it, it yeah. it's got to be because I feel like writing the book. I feel like right. whatever, if people read it, it'll help them somehow. It'll relieve some suffering, whatever. It can't be for the money. Oh, it can't yeah. be because I want to have, you know, uh, Christopher Ryan wrote three books, like yeah. rather than two, like, oh, that'll make me happy. <laughs> no, I did. I completely agree. And it's funny, actually, because when I read that story the other day, when the one you just mentioned, the enough, uh, you were high on the list of the first people I thought of when I read that story. I was like, oh, that's a perfect Chris Ryan story. <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff. There that you go. Love, you were right. Like, but do you yeah. ever, did you ever read Catch-22, speaking of I Joseph Heller? I did not. There's a really interesting uh, moment, and it, it's also in the film. Oh, you should check out the film. It's okay. it's one of those 1970s films where I think everyone was probably high smoking weed when they were making it. And right. so it's got that kind of like, you know, hip 70s swinger energy to it. I, I really like that period in, in film. Uh, but anyway, there's this, it's about American soldiers in World War II who are based in Northern Africa and they're flying bombing missions over Italy uh -huh. when it's occupied by the Nazis, right? And uh, anyway, there's this moment where they invade Italy and they're going through and they're fighting the Nazis and they they're, uh, they go through this village and there's this old man and one of the American soldiers speaks Italian and he's talking with this man and the man is like just totally indifferent about the Nazis were here yesterday now the Americans are yep. here and and the Americans like what the fuck man we're like liberating your country we're saving you and he's yep. like he's like dude you don't understand like you know this is Italy right we've the Romans like the the waves of invasions yeah. people coming and going the the historical context you know that i'm seeing this from makes you look this big to me and you yeah. want to be a big hero you're just the latest guy going through yeah no it's and that's the truth right that's a hundred percent the truth of like just having that you know, yeah, thank you for kicking out the Nazis, but in the great scheme of seeing somebody else will conquer us about three years from now and there's other <laughs> shit. It's like it's an ongoing thing. Yeah. Is the yeah, no, I think it's uh that's a good um yeah man, it's funny how that theme keeps showing up because this is the same thing, right? It's the theme of like in being able to find a way to enjoy life under a goddamn Nazi regime. Like, okay, I'm all for being able to overthrow it and change it. But that's the external reality. And, you know, yeah. you let's say you pull it off and you succeed. That's amazing. Pat on the back, heroic. There will be some other asshole who come in and there will be more drama. You know, it's a never ending process. Right. Yeah. And I'm not against it. That's 
exchanging external reality is important to some degree, but then there's the other side of being able to roll with anything that comes your way. And that's the internal one that is regardless of. And I think, you know, there's a place where both things are important, where you do want to change some things out there in the world, but you also want to realize that it's a never ending process and that you need the... So, yeah, man, it's, um, I guess, one thing that you were saying earlier about the book writing. Yeah, I selfishly, I hope that you'll find that uh, why do I want to write this book? Because I always enjoy reading your stuff. Oh, thanks, man. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's funny when you see, that's probably the reason why I had such a hard time now with agents and all of that. I had a little glimpse of the behind the scenes a while back. Uh, maybe about three, four years ago, I had this thing happen where, History on Fire was at its top. I had a ton of downloads. My audience was huge. So for the first time ever, I have top-notch literary agents who suddenly they like me and they mm -hmm. are all interested and they love me and these. And I'm like, huh, because I was writing the same shit the other day and nobody gave a fuck. But okay, sure, let's, that's great. The, right. And then, you know, the more I start talking to them, the more the uglier it got like i got this and now you know i'll mention names of course but like really top-notch level of literary agents out there and they were like okay okay so now that we have the general idea we'll hire a professional pitch writer to write the pitch and i'm like dude what are you talking about but okay whatever sure maybe there's a particular lingo that the publisher want or and then, you know, of course, once we get the big advance, we're going to spend a good chunk of it to buy a bunch of books so that you're automatically a New York Times bestseller. And I'm like, wait, what? It's like, yeah, that's how it works. We make you a New York Times bestseller. You don't become a New York Times bestseller. We just do. And again, I'm from Italy. I'm used to doing shady shit and going beyond the law. So I wasn't <laughs> that. And then, you know, I was like, okay, whatever, you know, I guess. Uh -huh. But Okay. But this was the kicker when he was like, oh, and then, of course, that will leave us also money to hire some, essentially some ghostwriter to write the silly book for you. And I was like, wait, what? You know, I write because I enjoy it. I mm. write because it's a passion. I write because I put my soul in a goddamn book. You are essentially treating me like Kim Kardashian. You just want my name and a uh, label so that you can sell some shitty produce mass market thing to my audience yeah. using my name. And the whole feeling was so gross. And it was clear that to work with these guys, that's how they would want to do things. Like the reality is that they know what book they want you to write. They are not in any way, shape or form interested in the book you want to write. Right. And I remember thinking, you know what? If I need money that bad, I'll start dealing drugs. I don't need to do this shit. This is just, ugh, you know, you can put yeah. here how much money you put in my lap for these. These, my morality is very flexible, not that flexible. You know, this crosses a line that I'm like, no, fuck you. I'm not doing this stuff. And of course, that pretty much permanently closed the doors to most uh, publishing for me in the, in the big way, because I don't think they like that, because my vibe was, I really need to take a shower now. And, yeah. you know, there's that. And so I'm like, but I would never make that. Like, if I you bring me back to that point, would I change what I did? It's like, hell no. I mean, this was like, it goes back to what you're saying about the why you're right, why you want to create something. Yeah. 
And if it's not to do something beautiful, it's not to for yourself. It's not because you think maybe it helps somebody else. And what the fuck? There are other ways to make money, you know? Yeah, and, and to save money, uh, yeah. you know, like disengage yeah. from consumer culture. I yeah. mean, I live in this house I'm in is 850 square feet. Mm-hmm. And Anya and I live here together and it's yeah. plenty. Right, 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 right. Exactly. It's fucking awesome, man. In the living room, we have a screen and a projector. You know, we watch movies. We got a beautiful wood burning stove. You know, it's like you got everything we need, 850 square feet. Uh, you know, I, I bought it with cash, no mortgage. Yep. No, that's fantastic. I lo- and that goes back to the enough. Yeah. You know, and it's a treasure that there's no amount of money that can make up for that feeling. Yeah. Because uh, somebody will have, uh, will be sitting on $3 billion and it's not enough. And so they are the hungry ghost of Gabor Mate's fame, right? Is exactly. that an addiction? And so I love that you're in a place where you feel that way because it's such a rewarding feeling. It's like, no, I don't need anymore. Well, okay. you guys should come and visit, man. I would love to. I don't know Maybe why you we'll, we'll convince you to hundred and fifty square feet, but uh, you know we could. Uh, you no, can we open. got the Scarlett Johansson. You can stay in the van. That's our guest oh, yeah, room. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's and, cool. Uh, and we're buying the the land right next to us so that we can build wow. some cabins. Nice. So when sure. we have friends come to visit, you have your own cabin. That would be fun. I yeah. do. And, uh, I try one place I love so much is the Black Hills of South Dakota. Yeah. So maybe I can make a detour on a road trip going to the Black Hills. I would love to stop by and visit. That yeah. Be- well, and if not, we can we can meet because we go up to Montana every summer to we're, we're teaching a workshop in Whitefish. Nice. Excuse me. Yep. Um <clears throat> we've done it two summers and, and we're gonna do it this summer as well. So we drive up through Wyoming. Perfect. So uh, I don't know when you go to the the Black Hills. I think it's late summer. Is that normally when you yeah, go? Usually, when do I go? Probably July. Uh, okay. Probably. I think we're doing the workshop in June this this year. Oh, you're going a little early. I don't yeah. know. Maybe I change things around. But, yeah. uh, but whatever. Know. Well, we can meet in the Wind River Range or you guys can come to. I mean, really, it's amazing here. It's a, it's a very unique, uh, strange place. And who knows, maybe you guys will catch the bug and, and you, you know, move right. out to Crestone and be part of the tribe. You know, the only thing that would work is um, being Cambodian. Savannah is, um, she, if it's less than 70 degrees, she's pretty much frozen. So <laughs> she's like, it's yeah. not built for the cold. Yeah, yeah, uh, I understand. Oh, I gets too cold for her, I think. It's oh, like okay. built for tropical 90 plus kind of vibe well all right seasonal visits then yeah exactly summer visits that works out but yeah uh, yeah yeah, all right daniele bolelli uh tell people where to find you um in ojai yes (laughs) give us your address Uh, you know the usual good stuff so history on fire podcast if you like people speaking with the heavy italian accent in your ear for a long time telling you wild tales that wild are, tales 
you yeah. you seem to you specialize is there a particular historical period you're all over the place sometimes it's place. native americans sometimes yep. it's romans greeks mongols i'm absolutely all over the place i think for your listeners and uh, not to you know put you in the box of like sex obsessed but you know <laughs> since i appreciate and approve of there's a two-part series I did that some of your listeners may dig because so much of history is heavy and depressing and is bloody and is war and is all that shit, right? Right. So as a mental health break for myself, I did two episodes at one point about EQ, the Zen monk who was... Uh, oh, yeah. patterns in life were Zen, sex, and drinking. Right. He's my absolute idol. There's uh, no story I like more than his. So he's just... That one is a fantastic one because he's such a fun-loving guy that it's a tale with no major murder and horror and terrible things happening. He's just a guy having a blast in 1400s Japan. And uh, and I love that guy. EQ is spelled I-K-K-Y-U. I think he's, uh, I want to say it's episode 45, 46 of History on Fire. That one, I think, would be a fun one. For people who never checked out anything else, they are not so sure they want to do a deep dive, that would be a fun one to check out. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I will put a link to that episode in the show notes, as I said. I'll also put the Amazon link in the show notes. And I will, as just a, a bonus... I'll put a photo of myself hanging upside down over the San Luis Valley. So you got to you gotta check out the show notes to see that. Thank you for listening. I will be back with you shortly, either with Aroma or with um, Kyle Tierman or, or with a Tibetan Rinpoche or God knows what's coming next. Stay tuned. Thanks for your attention, everybody. Sending out lots of love to you. Here's Carsey Blanton, as always, reminding you that uh, live this one, because the next one's not guaranteed. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation
big deal if you want to be free say what you want to feel spend the night with me i'm gonna take you up in my arms and if we must go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground